Today's scripture reading comes from the last verse of Proverbs 25 and the first 11 of Proverbs 26. Like a city whose walls are broken, broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Sending a message by the hands of a fool is like cutting off one's feet or drinking poison. Like the useless legs of one who is lame is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Like tying a, a stone in a sling is giving of honor to a fool. Like a thornbrush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passerby. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Um, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much um, for your word, Lord, for the wisdom we can ask you for, Lord, um, that you show to us in your word, Lord. Um, I just pray that, Holy Spirit, you would soften our hearts to what you want us to hear today. Um, thank you so much for whatever message you have for us this morning, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Before we get started this morning, hey yo, got me, there we go. Good morning. <laughs> hey, uh, so before we get started this morning, um, I'm gonna invite uh, Leah Espy up here to uh, just speak for a moment about a really cool opportunity for us to um, get involved with international students here in um, the coming semester. So I'm going to give her a few minutes just to talk about Global Connections and what they're doing, and then we'll start our sermon this morning. No. Okay. Whoa. Okay. So just a few short years ago, I was a college student. I won't tell you how long ago that was. Um, and I remember it was I was working with international students through our BSM. It was BSM at Texas A&M. And I met a Jordanian student, and he told me, he said, I've lived here in the United States for two or three years, and I've never been invited into an American home. And that struck me and has, like, circled through my brain so many times over the last many years in the ministry opportunities that the Lord has given me. Um, and as he led me overseas and other things, like I just realized that we have an opportunity, especially being in a town where you have such a large international student presence to reach the nations. You don't have to be called to go across the world to be part of, of what scripture says that we are actually mandated to do, and that is to reach all nations, all tribes and tongues and peoples with the gospel. And so because we actually at University of Florida have over 7,000 international students from over 130 countries, you guys have such a rich opportunity to just in your classrooms and through study groups and just being intentional about the friendships and the relationships that you create um, in, in your space to be able to welcome them here. And so that is part of the ministry that Daniel and I um, are passionate about doing. It's one of the reasons that we also 
came here to University of Florida, that the Lord led us here. But there's so many ways to get connected. And Global Connections is a really neat organization that they really do a lot of the hard work for you. If you really are just like, you know, I want to be, I want to be God's hand and hands and feet and I want to serve, but I don't know how to get started or how to step in. They actually they have this international um, student like welcome that they're going to have on Sunday, August 18th at the BCM at two o'clock. So that's a great way you can just come and hang out. Like there's food and games and fun just to let the students kind of get to to feel welcome on this campus. There is also, um, they actually need rides. Starting this week, the students will be arriving from all over the world. They will literally be dropped off at um, bus stations and the airport and places that they've never been here before. So many have never walked onto American soil. And it's it's a foreign land. If you've ever traveled overseas, it can be very overwhelming to be in a place um, and you know nobody. And so just to be a smiling face and to, to greet them and to take them, help them um, move into their apartment, those kind of op- opportunities. Then they'll also throughout, so that's like a one day thing. Like if you just have one day that you can um, devote, then you can sign up for that. If you're wanting to do things like have an international friend, they sign up to have English language partners, international friends that you connect and you just meet for coffee or on campus or whatever once a week and just hang out, develop a relationship, invite them over to your dorm, your apartment, let them get to know you, take them along when you go places. Um, a lot of them don't have cars, so it's another way just to, to welcome them and plug them in. So. There's going to be all these different opportunities, and then my husband and I, uh, once a month, we will do um, a dinner on a usually Friday or Saturday in the evening, and we'll play games, and it's just fun. And any of you would be welcome. We have our students that we um, per, that we invite, and then Global Connections is going to connect us with even more. And so there will be lots of opportunities for you to really get plugged in. Let me just give you the last bit that you need to know is that there's a training that you need to go through because Global Connections is really um, it, it's really important for them that you understand even just cultural relations and, and things like that, so you know how to connect with people and so it's a two-hour online training so you can do it at your own like when it's convenient for you um, there's an application you first fill out they'll send you the link for training and then you just do it online it's really not hard um, and so if you want to get connected with that see me after service because I would love to plug you in um, help you get started if you want to help people move in this week you would need to do it over the next day or two um, but even through the coming weeks and we'll be up here talking and sharing more about other ways for you to get Um, plugged in in the next few weeks um, as we encourage you to step into what God might have for you and how you can be involved in reaching the nations here on campus. Very good. So I would encourage you guys to uh, see Leah if that's something that interests you. Even if you just have questions, um, you can be praying for even the people that are going to be having those relationships. Um, I, I remember this past year, um, there was a young man I knew at the BCM who had a Japanese friend, and um, it was just really cool to be able to check in with him at times uh, on how that relationship was going, simply just because I was praying for him and his friend. So, uh, good morning, Aletheia Church. If you don't know who I am, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Aletheia, so we appreciate you guys being here uh, this morning. I wanted to take a second before I dive into my sermon this this morning just to say, um, if you guys haven't noticed, like we cleaned this place up a lot 
over the last couple of weeks, and I just wanted to take a, a, a second to publicly thank the volunteers who have been giving their time faithfully over the course of the last three or four weeks to help paint, uh, to help clean, uh, to help get gross stains that have maybe been in some places for 30, 40 years in this building. Uh, we just appreciate you guys. Obviously, like if you have spent any length and period of time at Aletheia, you know that we're not huge on aesthetics. Uh, we're not huge on doing things that are going to attract crowds. We're big on the gospel, and we're big on loving Jesus and telling people about him. But it is nice not to be around filth and like use paint that like probably is not lead-based and um, is not toxic. You know, just kind of, you know, basic life things. So we're excited. I mean, it's nice walking into this room now and feeling like I haven't walked into the center of a dark hole any longer because the paint actually reflects the light in the room instead. So anyway, uh, for those of you guys that have given so much time over the last couple weeks, really thank you very much. You guys have given hours and hours and hours of your weekends. Yeah, I mean, seriously. So... Um, I appreciate it. Daniel appreciates it. The other elders really, really appreciate your faithful service. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully here in the, couple, the, the next couple weeks, uh, we'll finish up the little uh, odds and ends that we have around here. So uh, glad you are here this morning. Only a few more weeks before the students roll back in for the fall uh, semester, both at the University of Florida and Santa Fe. Um, I've already started noticing that traffic has picked up around town. And so what, what was taking me about 10 minutes is now taking me 20 to 30, depending on where you're trying to go. Uh, school starts up for families in a week if you've got public school or private school here in the area. Uh, football season is right around the corner as well, which is exciting. Uh, and then we will also begin a series in the book of Acts uh, starting in three weeks entitled Go and Tell. And the reason we're doing that is because um, we really believe that heading into the fall every year in this city, God has placed us in a very unique time and place uh, to reach people that are going to be moving into Gainesville for the first time. And we have a unique opportunity to go and tell uh, the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And we want to maximize that opportunity and be encouraging one another to do that. And so we'll be, we will be doing that from the book of Acts uh, this upcoming fall. But um, if you've spent any length of time with us over the summer, uh, you know that we've been studying and alternating week by week between the Psalms and the Proverbs. Um, next week will be our final sermon in this series. And the reason we've been doing that is because over the course of the summer, what we want to, to do, at least um, from the stage, uh, is, is really hit home these, these two ideas that we think are critically and vitally important to a walk with the Lord, and that's this rhythm of both wisdom and worship. The idea of uh, giving thanks and praise to God, but also this idea of knowing Him more fully and applying that to our lives. And so we said that back all the way back in the first week of this series that, that Psalms are songs uh, recorded in Scripture for our benefit that are designed to encourage us and incline the posture of our hearts uh, to remember the faithfulness of God and worship Him. Uh, one of the things you'll notice uh, consistently throughout the Psalms, specifically in David's Psalms, is just the raw emotion that he has as he's wrestling with walking out the implications of knowing God and longing to see his faithfulness more fully. 
I, I say all the time that if, if I were to invent and create a religion, uh, the God of the Bible and the things written in Scripture were not the things that I would do because David at sometimes is exasperated, longing to see God move in his life. And even as he declares he's faithfully waiting on the Lord, he's also kind of throwing a temper tantrum. And I think this is this really beautiful moment where we as followers of Christ can, can sit down, open the word of God, read the Psalms, and say, yeah, I can relate with that sometimes. Right? Like, I am in the, the depths and the valleys of despair right now, and yet when I see David, a guy who's described throughout Scripture uh, as a man after God's own heart, crying out to God both as his only hope but also in anger because he doesn't see the Lord moving in this season, I can relate with that. And it, and it should cause in us, right, the ability to worship because we know that ultimately God did meet David, that ultimately David did see the Lord. But we also said that Proverbs is a book written by Solomon that by design God has given to us as a gift to help us grow in wisdom. And we said that, you know, you won't automatically be a genius after reading the book of Proverbs, but that we will hopefully together as a church over the course of our time together, we've learned and grown and applied the wisdom of God to our lives throughout this summer. And so hopefully this time on Sunday mornings has been a time of encouragement for you both to seek a greater worship of Jesus but also in seeking wisdom that is only found in him. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Proverbs 25. I'm really excited to preach on this this morning, especially that last verse that Danielle read this morning. Uh, hope you guys are as excited about unpacking that as I am. Um, but go ahead and open up your Bible. That's where our text is going to start. And as, you, as you've noticed over time, if you've been here with us over the summer, you've noticed that every time we've been doing a section in Proverbs, We've uh, kind of been reviewing a theme that, that Solomon is sharing with his son in that particular section of the book of Proverbs. So we've looked at knowledge, uh, we've looked at Solomon explaining to his son the folly of sin and the trap that it lays before us if you continue to fall into it. Um, we looked at his call to pursue wisdom and just make that a lifestyle that's important in the life of a believer. Um, we saw uh, Solomon talk about the importance of trust and how trust is capital that, that we gain in relationships and it's an important thing to uh, consider. Uh, we, we, we heard De uh, Derek give us a, a sermon on work and how work is designed both in, in God's mandate to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but that also we can redeem that now this side of the fall and see God use that to his glory. And then we also saw uh, Solomon speak to his son on the importance of just guarding our speech and being intelligent with our words and, and how we use them. And so this morning... Uh, we're going to see a different theme, and this is how we're going to finish our time in Proverbs over the summer, and that's self-control. Right, we're going to talk about what self-control is, what does it look like to lack self-control, uh, where do we possibly lack self-control in our lives and not even realize it, and then we're also going to look at... Um, what it might look like for us to be known as a people who love God, seek a greater worship of him, but yet also in that maintain a level of self-control becoming of a follower of Jesus. So I'm going to pray that the Lord might illuminate the scripture to us this morning and then we'll look at the word. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it addresses topics uh, that we at times may not even want to look at. Uh, Lord, I, I think this particular section in the book of Proverbs is incredibly timely. As many in this room um, are, are young, uh, learning what it means to grow into the full stature of Christ. And although we long for you and we, we have much zeal, Lord, oftentimes I confess even in my own life that we lack wisdom. And so, Lord, might you meet us this morning. Might you convict us of sin and draw us to repentance that we might rest in the promises of what Jesus has done for us. And in that, pursue obedience, wisdom, and as we see this morning, self-control in a way that's going to make much of you in your kingdom. Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would meet us here in this time, and we ask this all in your good name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs chapter 25, uh, starting in verse 28 Uh, Solomon just says this to his son. He says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And so uh, one of the things I I wanted to do uh, is just kind of try to define self-control. And and one of the definitions I found for it online was this. It says that self-control is an aspect of inhibitory control. And you're going to need to know a little bit about the human brain and psychology to know what they mean by that. But mainly, it means that we as human beings have the ability to control um, just basic uh, psychological processes, and we have the ability to override instincts even at times. Is kind of what uh, that is saying. And, and, and what the definition goes on to say is that it's, it, it's the ability to regulate one's emotions, one's thoughts, and behaviors in the face of temptations and impulses. Uh, that as an executive function, self-control is a cognitive process that is necessary for regulating one's behavior in order to achieve specific purposes and goals. Uh, and if you guys don't like that definition, you can blame Wikipedia because, as you know, all the be- best information online comes from there, and that's where I got that definition. Um, so here's the reality. All of us need to exhibit self-control in some way, shape, or form, or um, we would never get anything done. So if you've ever said of someone, man, that person really lacks self-control, they might lack self-control in comparison to someone else, but the reality is, like, you got out of bed this morning, and you got in your car, some of you earlier than others, right, but you got out of bed this morning, and you came to church this morning. That, that took a level of self-control and decision-making, uh, Maybe to give another example, uh, many of you here are in school, are in college, or have a job. That probably describes about 95% of the room. Uh, that takes a degree of self-control to, to get to class, to get to work, to do the work that, that is necessary uh, to see those tasks through to completion. So all of us exercise self-control on a daily basis to see, uh, to see things done. And so the question that I I started asking myself as I was thinking through this is, is what would Solomon be trying to communicate to his son here in regards to to describing a lack of self-control and the issues that it might create? What does he want his son, and ultimately what does God want us to know about self-control, and what type of self-control is he referring to? And so I think it's going to help us if we take a step back and look at verse 27 to maybe, know, maybe to get an idea of a little bit more specifically what Solomon is referring to. So look at verse 27 in Proverbs 
chapter 25. He says this, It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So if we were to kind of define what Solomon is referring to uh, in verse 27, uh, we would say that he's probably referring to what's commonly known as gluttony, right? This idea that uh, it do not eat more than what is needed simply because it tastes good or you have it or you have access to it or whatever it may be, but he's referring to a gluttonous lifestyle in verse 27. So it seems to me then that Solomon is indicating to his son that he needs to control his desires, especially when it comes to indulgences, when it comes to things we intend to indulge in. Because when I use the term gluttony, that term has, has kind of evolved over time. But when I say that word out loud, I'm sure the first thing that comes to your mind, like it does for mine, is like the, the buffet. And, and you show up there, and you pay $15, and you can eat whatever you want. right? And has anybody ever left a buffet and been like, man, that was a great decision? <laughs> right? Like, n- like, never once have I gone to a buffet, which has been probably close to eight years since I've been to one, and I've walked down the middle like, you know, that was a great use of my money. I feel sick to my stomach because I ate so much because I paid for it. So it's like, well, I wouldn't normally have a piece of cake, a cupcake, an uh, ice cream cone, and a cookie, but it is a buffet, and I did pay for it, right? And I wouldn't normally have four main courses, but I paid for it. Right? And so you, you convince yourself of this when you go to the buffet. Right? And so typically when we think of gluttony, we think it only kind of revolves around that, that world of food, uh, of overindulging in food, and that's what we've come to, to attach it to. But the reality is, is we could probably create a huge list of things that we prefer to indulge in that could be considered gluttonous. Right? The reality is we could say food. Uh, we could use sexual appetites or lust in there. We could even add entertainment. Right? And the, the, the desire to binge watch all of Netflix in 24 hours. Right? I, I mean, I've never seen Stranger Things. I know you guys love that. But if you've watched the entire season of Stranger Things in eight hours, you, need to, you, you might be gluttonous. Right? But here's what I'm going to present to you guys this morning. I actually think that's low-hanging fruit. I actually think that's really easy to see as gluttonous if you look at those things. But maybe if we digged a little bit deeper, where are some areas that we're overindulging and gluttonous in that we wouldn't even consider to be gluttonous? Is it possible that we're gluttonous for busyness? just for the sake of being able to point out to others how important we are and how busy we are all the time, that we always seek more tasks and more things to get done? Is it possible we've become gluttonous about gossiping and complaining with people? And the reason we love Facebook for it is because that is the perfect avenue for it. Is it possible that we've become gluttonous and rest? And that we just seek to be lazy and that something that God gave us as a gift, like rest, has become something that we instead worship and overindulge in. See, here's the the reality. The the problem with even verse 27, when you look at that and you say, well, honey's good, right? As a matter of fact, most of the time now, they're telling you to put honey in your tea or something like that because it's a more natural form of sweetener, right? But like anything, we are quick this side of the fall 
to take good things that God has given us, like honey, and overindulge in it in a way to the point that it becomes a hindrance instead of a gift or a help to our lives. Right? Let me share with you what Paul says the primary problem with gluttony often becomes in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Listen to what Paul says here to the church at Rome. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And I want you to pay attention to these next two verses. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. See, the reality is, is God gives things to us as gifts to be enjoyed, not so that we can run amok with that gift, but that it might point us towards him to worship him. And what frequently happens and what Paul says has been happening on this side of Genesis chapter 3 is that God sees us, he sees us take these things that he designed to cause us to look at him and worship him, and instead he watches us worship those things instead. He watches us worship the taste of food to where we overindulge and become gluttonous. Have you guys ever thought about this? God created sex so he might know a thing or two about it. And yet he sees us as human beings pursue sexual intimacy and things and, and, and avenues outside of what he designed it for because we end up worshiping the creation rather than the, than the creator of that thing. That the biggest problem we have with sexual promiscuity and adultery or any of the things that you want to throw in inside the junk drawer of uh, sexual immorality is not the sexual immorality of itself, but the fact that we worship that thing rather than the God who created it. And that gluttony is just, just the worship of these things run amok. And here's something we need to know very specifically and what Paul makes abundantly clear in Romans chapter 1. And I would submit this to you, what Solomon is trying to make clear to his son. God created those things for our good, but for his glory, and he will not share his throne with those things. That when God looks out over his creation and he sees us pursuing these things higher than our pursuit of him and our desire for him, it grieves him not just because God is some narcissist, but because God knows that what we need far more than we need those things is him. And that we replace worship and our deepest longings and desires with a cheap imitation of him. 
And as followers of Jesus, we can, with the power of the Holy Spirit, long to pursue things of value and pursue the kingdom of God, which can include enjoying these gifts that God has given us, but in a way that's going to encourage us to worship Him, not the things themselves. And this means then that when we look at at passages like Proverbs chapter 25 and chapter 26, it's a call to to sit back, to quiet our souls, and analyze our lives and how we spend our time and what we pursue. It's where we can ask ourselves questions. And in those questions, we can ask ourselves if you enjoy video games or if you enjoy sports or if you enjoy sex inside the confines of marriage or you enjoy cooking and enjoy food and and tasting different things or if you enjoy a glass of wine or whatever it may be that you see as a good gift, you can ask yourself this question, is this stirring my affections for God? In my pursuit and enjoyment of this activity or this thing, is it stirring my affections for the one who created it? And I would submit to you, if we cannot answer yes in that question, then the answer for us is going to be repentance, a regaining of the control of our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions, and to reorient them to a worship of God and not a worship of of that item. Or as Paul would put it in Romans chapter 1, to worship the creator rather than the creation. Guys, this is what self-control is. is If you you boil it down to its basic components and you throw out that Wikipedia definition that I used earlier, what Solomon is trying to say to us is that self-control is the ability to, by God's grace, say no to self and yes to God. To say no to worshiping the creation and to say yes to worshiping the creator. And this is for our good and his glory. Now, you may be sitting there saying, like, why? Like, okay, Kevin, I get it. Like, okay, all right, all right. Like, worshiping creation over creator, this is bad. But why, why the self-control bit? Why is this so important? Well, Solomon shares the danger for you and I if we pursue life without consistently analyzing ourselves and exercising self-control. Look at what he says again there in verse 28 of Proverbs chapter 25. He says, a man without self-control is like what? A city broken into and left without walls. Look at that. He says, if, if you or I lack self-control... We're like a city that's been broken into and left without walls. Do you see what Solomon compares us to if we lack the ability to do this? If we lack the desire to pursue him and analyze ourselves? He says we're a person without defenses. He ultimately says we're unsafe to be around. How many of you guys knew, like, if you lived in a large city in the first century or even pre-first century, but in the time where Solomon would have been writing this to his son, how important walls were to those cities for defense. If you built a city and you were a, a, a king or a leader of a tribe or whatever else, and you didn't put some sort of defenses, let me let you know how long you would have been a leader. Not very long. 
because it would have taken no time at all for a conquering army or military to notice your lack of defense and fortifications and to use that. If you see over and over again in the historical narratives of the history of Israel, what are they consistently trying to do even after the exile? The entire book of Nehemiah is about God using Nehemiah and sending him back to rebuild what? The walls of Jerusalem and how important that was to protecting and defending the people of God. And what Solomon is saying to his son here is like, look, son, if you lack the ability to reflect consistently and exercise self-control, you are defenseless and unsafe in this world. I think we typically tend to downplay self-control, right? I think as we get further and further advanced as a society, one of the things that we've um, done over time is we refuse to hold people to a standard and have people grow up. Even sociologists have started terming this idea of Peter Pans, right? And what they mean by that is young men who never grow up out of the stage of adolescence. You know, like 150, 200 years ago, there was no stage called adolescence, You hit age 10 or 11 and you started working with your family. You got a job very early on and very soon afterwards you were married young because that's what we consider to be important. And I'm not saying that we need to follow that exact blueprint of life, but what I am saying is that God has designed us as human beings by giving us parents and placing us in opportunities for education or whatever it may be to be growing up in maturity and in that growing up in maturation, exercising more self-control. Meaning that there is a mandate in all of us, right, that we should be getting, becoming, we should be becoming more mature in our lives the older we get. This means that a parent that disciplines their children is doing a good thing because they're instilling self-control in that child. Because guess what? If you're a kid in the room here this morning and mom and dad are evil because they, you know, grounded you because you lacked self-control in some area, that's the most loving thing they could have done for you. Because what God's word is saying to us this morning is that this lack of self-control actually makes us unsafe to others and ourselves. That we're unsafe to be around. And so the question I kind of was wrestling with as I was looking at this verse and thinking through these, the, the remaining verses this week is, is, do I know anyone like this? Do I know a person that, that consistently exhibits a pattern or a lack of self-control, and in that lack of self-control, they're not real great to be around? Like, let me, like, let me give you an example. Um, how about someone who lacks self-control in their political opinions? Heard a few giggles, right? That person's a lot of fun to be around, right? right you, you'll be, they're like a city broken into and left without walls. You, like, they're just looking for an argument so that they can prove their intelligence and how much they know about politics at all times. Right? They always want to have a, de- a debate, like, like an example of this. Right? You can be sitting there around and you can be like, man, the weather's really out- nice outside today. Like, like, I'm just really enjoying it. And, they're like, and they look at you and are like, well, enjoy it while you can because Trump is going to kill us all with greenhouse emissions. It's like, oh. Like, I, just, I just thought like, the weather was great, but okay, Trump's destroying us all. Or like, I've, I've got family members right, who I, I would sit down and I'd be like, man, like, just, man the economy is a real mess. Thanks a lot, Obama. What? 
Like, like he's responsible for every single thing that's going on right here. They just want to, they just want to put in right, their little dig about politics at all times, and they lack the self-control to know when and where to have those conversations and when they're important. Right, how about the person who lacks self-control with technology? Right, you'll, you'll be hanging out with them, and you know the iPhone 30 comes out, and, and they sit outside all night, and they pick it up, and they come around, and you're like, hey, look at, look at my new phone. You know, it's got a $10,000 processor in it. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, what, what are you going to do, meme faster now on Facebook? Like, 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 like what, what value is this bringing to your life? Like, good for you, dude. How much was that thing? Three grand. Dude, that's like a down payment on a car. You're riding your bike. Sell that thing and buy a car. Right? How about the, the, the person who lacks self-control in their love of sports? Anybody ever seen this guy? His football team loses over the weekend, and you would think like his closest family member died, and you're like, oh, man. Like, some, like, by, by the way, guys, this is the primary idol of this city in about three weeks. The mood you guys walk into the church with on a Sunday morning is often directly tied to how that team does on Saturday afternoon. It's been pretty depressing the last seven years here. <laughs> and I, you walk in here like, oh man, like what's, like what's, oh, I'm not doing so good. Oh, like is your family okay? Oh yeah, we're fine, but the Gators lost. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love sports, but come on, man. Right? Or, or this one, right? They walk into work on Tuesday morning and you're like, man, you, like, you, are, you're, you look sick. Are you okay? No, I, I was just up late. Oh, like, is it because like, something was wrong? No, man, like, my wide receiver was playing in my fantasy football game last night and I needed him to get 60 yards because I needed six points to win, but I needed him not to catch a touchdown because the, my opposing uh, player had the quarterback for the same team. And so, man, I was just really stressed and I couldn't, you know, the game was over at 12, but I couldn't fall asleep till two because I ended up winning. Like, dude, go to bed. Believe it or not, like Reggie Wayne didn't know you were watching him last night. He had no clue. And if you can't tell, I could be really specific about some of these examples because I am that guy at times. I am that guy who lacks self-control, and some of those examples are, are direct things that people have said to me at various times in my life. And here's what Proverbs says to me about my lack of control and what he says to us about our lack of control. He says that when you're operating, Kevin, in that, in that mindset, where you care more about that thing than anything on the, on the world, you are unsafe to be around. And then the word that you're going to see consistently used out through the first 11 verses there of chapter 26 is this. You're a fool. Anybody in here like being called a fool? Not one hand. He says, you're a fool, right? He says in verse one, honor is not fitting for a fool. It's like snow in a summer. Shouldn't happen. Right? If you lack self-control, right, the definition that Solomon is using for you and for me is that we're foolish or that we are a fool and that no honor should be given to us in any way, shape, or form because it's like snow in the summer. It's a waste of time. Right? He goes on to say, 
Uh, This person who lacks self-control is like a person who curses useless causes, right? What he means by that is it would be like if, if we looked out over the the landscape of Gainesville and we found this organization that was helping the homeless and doing really good work here and then you just started talking poorly about that organization. Everyone around you would be like, dude, what are you talking about? Like everyone loves that organization. Like they they love people. They're trying to help people out. No, I think they're terrible. We should get rid of them. Right? This is this is what Solomon compares someone who lacks self-control to, the person with a terrible opinion about something that's obvious. He goes on to say in verse 3 that what the fool needs more than anything is a rod. What he means by that is discipline. In verse 4, he says it's not even worth arguing with a fool. Let me just say as an aside here, if you, that person I was talking about that loves to argue about politics all the time, there's your response. Let them talk and move on. He says in verse 8 that giving attention to a fool is like fastening a stone to a sling. Now, I knew exactly what he was talking about here because when I was a kid, my, my mom made the brilliant decision of getting us one of those Dollar Tree slingshots, and I couldn't get the stone to stay in the sling. So I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll tape it in there. Guess what I did? You're swinging that thing around, trying to swing it around. Smack myself in the face, right? Because the stone's not going to leave the sling anymore at that point, right? What Solomon is saying here is like, hey, if you're this foolish, you're like someone who puts the stone in the sling, attaches it there, and just hits yourself in the head over and over again. He says in verse 9 that no amount of knowledge makes up for the foolishness or lack of self-control. He says in verse 10 that someone who lacks self-control, hiring them or giving them responsibility is like an archer who wounds everyone. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, right? Hey, you know, doesn't make any sense. And then I love this last one. Let me read verse 11 aloud to you. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Anyone else super encouraged right now? Right, that a like. Jackie and I had, like, the dumbest dog that has ever existed when we lived in Virginia. Like, we're pretty confident he died trying to fight a rattlesnake last summer. He was living on the farm with my uh, father-in-law, and he was still fairly young. And they're like, like, he died. And we're like, why? We're "We're not really sure. Guarantee you he tried to fight a rattlesnake or a copperhead. Guaranteed. Because he's just really dumb. And one of the, like, but, like, if you would watch this dog, he got sick a lot because we got him from the pound, and that's just what happens when you get dogs from the pound. Like, that dog loved to eat his own throw up. And every time, what would, what would we do as human beings when we watch dogs do that? Ugh. And yet Solomon says here, the fool, the one who lacks self-control, is like the dog that returns to his own vomit. Because we're fools who repeat our folly over and over and over again. And so what we see is a lack of self-control in our lives displays one thing. We are foolish. And to give honor and responsibility and power to someone who lacks self-control is equally as foolish. Those are kind of the two consistent themes you see throughout those 12 verses. And so let me, let me start by just saying this. 
If you are in this room and you've ever been yelled at to be on time or something by me or someone else, this is why. Because the things we do in life matter. The things we do in in life matter because they reflect whom we serve, whom we love, that we're displaying something consistently to the world around us. And if we display a lack of self-control, do you ever think that that might show someone else that God lacks control, that God lacks order, that God lacks power? And so what would it look like if we took God's call here in the Proverbs seriously and examined ourselves and upon examining ourselves, practice self-control more seriously? What would life look like to those around us? Because here's the reality, right? I could stop at these, these 11 verses, these 12 verses, and I could say, all right, you guys have a great day, go home, right? And all I've preached to you is legalism. All I've preached to you is, hey, pick yourself up, buy your own shoestrings, right? Tie them, and, and then man up and get to work, or woman up. Is that a phrase, or did I just make that up, right? But stand up, get to work, get control of yourself, and act mature. But what would happen if we didn't invite these self-inflicted wounds into our lives? What would it look like if we didn't surrender to our appetites constantly? Which really, in reality, guys, if you think about it, the type of gluttony that Solomon is talking about here is really slavery. It's slavery to these things. And here's what I, I think we would see. Guys, the person that lacks self-control here that Solomon is talking about, here, here's what he wants his son to realize. Not, not just that that person is foolish, not just that that person exhibits a pattern of life that is so foolish that it, it mimics that of a dog who returns to their own vomit. Right? What he wants us to realize is a lack of self-control communicates to those around us, I am all I have to live for, and that's not much. A lack of self-control says to everyone else, what's going on in this life really isn't that important and I'm all that matters. But if you're here this morning, the gospel says something so much greater to you. The gospel says that because of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from a meaningless, purposeless life and that you have been handed over and adopted as a son or daughter of the Most High God, and that you live for His glory and His kingdom now. That your purpose extends far beyond whether you can get out of bed when your alarm clock goes off. It extends far beyond whether you can control your sexual appetites or whether you can diet that you have been delivered from slavery to live unto God. Jesus didn't die and raise again from the grave just so you could go to heaven. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Right? This is like everyone's memory verse. Right? And look at what 
Paul says to them, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. So look, look what he does. He eliminates this, hey, self-control saves you. That's not what we're teaching this morning. Right? But he says, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Keep going. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because when, when Jesus saved you, he didn't just save you so that you could hang out for eternity, right? He saved you to his kingdom and has good works prepared for you, meaning your life matters. What you do matters. And self-control displays to those around us that our lives have been changed, that our lives are a witness to that change, and that witness to others actually ends up displaying the glory of God to them. That good works display the glory of God. And guys, guess what? When the glory of God is put on display, guess what happens? Worship. Even amongst those that don't know God yet. I think back on my own life when I was in college and I didn't know the Lord. Guess what was happening? God kept putting these pesky people around me called Christians. And guess what they kept doing? They kept loving God, loving me, loving the people around them, pursuing excellence in school, having their life together able to get out of bed. You know, I was always amazed by this one girl who was in one of my classes, and I'd be like, hey, what did, what did you do over the weekend? She's like, oh, you know, like, uh, I, I went around and I drove my car and I picked up drunk people and drove them to new destinations because I really felt like it was unsafe for them to be trying to drive themselves. It's like, oh, did you, like, did, like you know, like, it's like a taxi? No, I just did it. Just giving people rides all, all weekend. She's like, what did you do? Got drunk? Right? And as I sat there, right, and I was being told by the world, like, how great the decisions I was making were, and I was living my best life, and I was enjoying all that college was supposed to be about, and as I sat there with that girl, guess what, I, just, I, I, I couldn't shake this feeling in myself. I was like, she's actually doing something that matters. She didn't sit there and give me a gospel presentation and do, like, the four spiritual laws with me. She just talked about her weekend, and she talked about in that, right, the way that she was living her life displayed the glory of God to me. And I was like, man, Christians like actually care about people enough to like want to make sure they arrive at their destination safely, even if, even if they're going to go to a new destination to make more decisions that are self-destructive. That seems counterintuitive to me. And it was a level of love that I couldn't grasp and understand. But see, what she had grasped is that God had saved her by his grace to the good works that he had prepared for her beforehand. And to live a life of self-control in the midst of the craziness that was my college and university, she was on mission. And that mission was to make much of Jesus even in the simple things of her life. And so here's something I want to shoot for 
for us to focus on as we finish up this morning, as we think through this, right? Hopefully, right, as we looked at Proverbs this morning, right, God has, has done something to awaken us and meant like, hey, how much time do I spend just in contemplation over my life, looking out over the landscape of my life, what I do, how I spend my time, what, what I'm investing in, what I'm doing, where, where do I lack the self-control to actually display the God I serve? As I, as I say to Gideon all the time, or, or Josiah, at, at, when we discipline them, I just say, hey, look, you can't earn mom or dad's love. We already love you, right? But we don't act that way because you're a part of this family already. When I look at myself and I, and I examine, I say, where do I lack self-control that's not becoming of the family of God that I'm already a part of? So here's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Go ahead and turn over there. That's where we're going to finish this morning. Peter just shares some very specific things here in 2 Peter chapter 1 that I think we can kind of shoot for and look at as we look to grow in self-control and ultimately grow in godliness and pursue a vibrant walk with Jesus. And this vibrant walk with Jesus will allow us to engage, encourage, equip, and empower one another to live out the mission of the gospel. Right, look at what Peter says here. He starts in verse 3. His, that's referring to, to, to Jesus, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine natures, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right, so here's, here's what Peter's saying there. He's like, Jesus has given us everything we need, which are his promises that his life, death, burial and resurrection are sufficient to save us and satisfy the wrath of God and adopt us into God's kingdom, right? That, those are the very precious promises that Christ has given us. And so Peter says, hey, hey, rest in those promises, look back to those promises because God has given them to us so that we can escape corruption, right? But look at what he says there. He says that in those promises, we're able to what? Escape the sinful desires which lead to a lack of self-control in our lives. So he says, in resting in the gospel truths of what God has done for us, right, as we rest in those promises, we actually are able to see that not only are we secure in Christ and adopted into God's family, but that we've been saved to good works, as Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we can be equipped and encouraged to walk away from sin and live on mission. And then look at what he says in verse 5. And because of these promises, for this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith. Notice what he says. He makes a shift, right? He says, rest in the promises of God. Know who you are in Christ. Know the magnitude of the gospel and what God has done for you in Jesus. And in knowing that truth, what do you need to do? Make every effort to grow in that. Meaning if you're like a brand new believer, right, what do you need to do? 
You need to remind yourself consistently, I cannot earn God's favor, I cannot earn his love, I cannot earn his trust, that that was completely bought for me in Christ, but I'm going to remind myself of that promise consistently, and I'm going to grow in my faith and trust in that promise. And in growing in that faith and the trust of those promises, I'm going to continue to pursue these things, right? Look at what he says. He says this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with what? Virtue. Right? He's like, hey, move from just knowing who you are in Christ to knowing what God cares about and start pursuing those things. And if you know who you are in Christ and as you grow in your identity and knowing who you are in Christ, that, that God has purchased you with the blood of his own son and his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that you will grow in virtue. And with that virtue, guess, what, guess what's going to come with that virtue? Knowledge. You're going to grow more and more in knowing about the magnitude of God's love for you and how unworthy you were of that love. And as you grow in that knowledge, you're going to supplement that knowledge with what? Self-control. Guys, one of the things that I think that I, that I have seen consistently, and we used to do this in, in Virginia at the church I was a part of, but we would actually present this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 as a pyramid. And we would say, faith in God is the, is the foundation for growing to the full stature and measure of Christ. And then we, each kind of thing that Peter lists here would be things that grow on one another. And I don't know how great of an illustration it was, but it kind of worked, right? And you would say, if you, if you had a great base and foundation in faith, and then you grew that faith into virtue, and that, that virtue grew into a greater knowledge of God, guess what's going to happen? If you love God more, if you recognize your identity in Christ, if you understand the magnitude of God's holiness and your role on earth as an ambassador for Christ, as Paul shares in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are ministers and ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation given to us as God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. If you start getting a picture of the magnitude and how great that is, guess what? Netflix just ain't going to seem that great. It's fun. Might even be a great way to kill an hour one afternoon and rest. But your neighbor matters a little bit more than stranger things. right? And you start exercising self-control, not out, out of some great movement of your will towards self-control, but because a greater worship of Jesus has led you to seeing the things of God as being more beautiful than the things that he has created. And as you grow in self-control, you'll see steadfastness. Meaning you'll just, people that, that exhibit self-control consistently are just set steadfast in life. It's like, man, that, you know, I, that person is on time all the time. If, if I ask someone to be there at 8 o'clock, they're there at 745. I just know that because they're steadfast in that self-control. Right? They're, they're steadfast in how they manage their weight. They're steadfast in their spiritual disciplines. They're steadfast in their love for their, their wife and their kids. They're steadfast in, the lo- in their love for the community around them and the people that they're in class with or the people that they work with. They just, they just do it. It's not like a matter of the will for them anymore. They just do it because it's, it's a pattern in their life as they've grown in self-control. And if you notice, right, as self-control grows into steadfastness, the terms that are going to be used by Peter are the opposite of the ones that Solomon used in Proverbs. 
He, move, he moves from talking about things that make people unsafe to be around to things that make people safe to be around. Have you ever been like, you know what? I'm going to hire somebody new for my job. I want someone who is unsteadfast and unreliable. No one would ever say that. But if you use the language that Peter uses here of someone that's steadfast, someone that's reliable, someone that is growing in godliness, right? What Peter means by that is in that steadfastness, you just start exhibiting the character of God. Have you ever said about someone that you've been around and they've been a believer for a long time, that's just a godly man or that's a godly woman? You don't even really fully know how to define that, but you're like, you know what, that, that person just loves God. Man, I hope to be like him or her one day. I had this, this old Sunday school teacher at my church growing up. And I didn't even know the Lord, but I look back on Miss Jane Smith and I just think about her. And I'm like, man, that woman loved God. I don't know about her theology. I don't know what was going on, but man, I know this. She loved God and she loved kids. And she wanted to make Jesus known amongst the kids at our church. Because right? she exhibited the character of godliness and she was there every Sunday loving on those kids and giving her time energy, and talents steadfastly. And then with our godliness, we grow in brotherly affection. This means, hey, the church should be a place where we love and encourage one another, not a place where we tear one another down. If you're around someone who's really growing in these ways and exhibits self-control, you're able to disagree with somebody on politics. You're able to disagree with somebody on sports. That's why I love you guys. You know I could care less about the Gator football team and yet you still love me. And you know that I'm a Redskins fan and you still love me, right? right? Because brotherly affection is a higher calling. And then lastly, love. Where it's just reflexive to choose to die to self and live for someone else. If we pursue these things, as you do, you and I will see and taste more of the joy of knowing God and seeing his kingdom realized here through his church. And guys, that is a life worth living. A life better than a life full of just entertainment or fleeting passions or lusts. A life of knowing why you were created in the first place, the God who designed you and knowing him fully and being adopted as his child. That is a life worth living. And so here's what we're gonna do. If I can get Josh and Ruthann to come back up here and lead us in a, a time of worship and we get somebody to turn the lights down, here's what I'm just gonna ask you to do as we reflect, right? Like I, I, I want the charge to be this, right? I, I, the simple charge is to go be more self-controlled, right? But that's the really simple one. And you don't need to come to church to, to hear that you need to get control of your life or whatever else, right? That's not the, that's not the point, right, that, that ultimately God wants us to get and understand. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to first realize the, the, the promises that Peter makes there in verses three and four. That Jesus has given us everything we need so that we can partake in the divine nature and escape corruption and sinful desires. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to thank God that because of Jesus Christ, you are delivered, you are free, and that you can worship God freely in spirit and in truth because of his son. And I want you to come up before you do anything else, after you do that, and I want you to take communion. 
And communion is the weekly thing we do here at Aletheia Church where we just confess to God, you are sufficient. God, I am not sufficient enough to bridge the gap of your wrath and my unrighteousness. But your son was. And I'm gonna take the bread and I'm gonna take the juice and recognizing in submission that Jesus was sufficient. And I want you to go back to your seat. I want you to pray. God, help me to be better at analyzing my own life. God, where do I need to grow? Do I need to grow in faith? Do I need to grow in knowledge? Do I need to grow in self-control? Do I need to to grow and exhibit more, more steadfastness? Whatever it may be, right? Here's what I can promise you. Those are prayers that God answers because they will bring you true and everlasting joy. And in that joy, it will make much of him, which is why you're here in the first place. So take communion, resting in the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you. Pray and cry out for God to give you the self-control to overcome those sinful desires that he's delivered you from and ask him to use you for the good works that he has prepared for you beforehand. And church, might that help us to live out our mission, which is to make much of Jesus and to lead people to become growing followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray that God might help us realize that. God, thank you that we are a people who lack self-control. And as Paul says, as we run after the creation rather than the creator, you didn't yell at us and tell us to, to, to fix it ourselves, but you fixed it for us. That in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything that was necessary upon and for salvation was done and completed. God, as we take communion this morning, Lord, we confess that you are sufficient, Jesus, and we worship and praise you. Father, forgive us of our sins. Grant us repentance so we might exhibit self-control in our lives. And Lord, use that self-control not for our glory, but to declare the glory and the majesty of the one who delivered us, your son, Jesus Christ. And may that self-control lead to steadfastness and may that steadfastness lead to brotherly love and affection and may that brotherly love and affection lead to a true and sincere love for you and for others. And Lord, as that love pours out of us, may it engage our city, may it engage our neighborhoods, may it engage our families with the life-changing power of the gospel. God, we ask this humbly because without you, none of this is possible. And God, I know that you will be faithful to answer this prayer because it is your will.